My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The chicken rice lady. The rice is perfectly schmaltzy. Not too much. Just the right amount of ginger. Just the right amount of chicken fat. It's gleaming with oil. It's yellow. It's so flavorful. The chicken is cooked perfectly. Welcome to Away to Go, a production of iHeartRadio and Fathom. I'm Gerilyn Gerba. And I'm Pavia Rosati. Our guest today is Oria Abraham founder of Aria's Malaysian Kitchen, a line of sweet and savory sauces and jams. When Aria moved to the United States to study film scoring at the Berklee College of Music, she never planned on staying. But life took its turns, and her homesickness for Malaysian cuisine led her on a path that ended up with a food business in Brooklyn. She's so passionate about spreading the word about Malaysian food that this year she took a group of Americans on a food tour of her home country. Aria, welcome. Thank you, Pavi. It's so nice to be here. We want to start, Aria, by asking you to tell us why you led a group of Americans on a trip to Malaysia. Okay, so here I am in Brooklyn in the United States where Malaysian cuisine is very, very still new, relatively new to a lot of people. Here we are in, in New York City where, you know, there are a lot of Malaysian restaurants. People have experienced it. But you go further west and most people have never heard of Malaysian food. In fact, a woman who lives in Chicago, when I was telling her about my business, she said to me, what is Malaysian food and do I care, was uh, what she said. She had no frame of reference for it at all. So here I am making sauce and, and jam and selling it. And even before that, I always loved sharing the food of my country because most people haven't experienced it yet. And so they go, oh, what is it? Is it Thai food? And I go, well, we use a lot of the same ingredients, but no, it isn't. And then they look at me and they say, is it Indian food? And I say, close, but no cigar. It, it is Indian food, but with a lot of Malay influence, Chinese influence. And, you know, I talk about it a lot and I cook it a lot and I share it a lot. And it hit me one day, here I am doing this when the wealth of Malaysian food is there, and why not let people experience it? Um, I think that folks are intrigued and curious. It's interesting and it's new. It's a relatively newcomer on the um, ethnic food scene here. And they want to go and taste something they've never experienced before. And so I, um, I decided I'll take people with me. I go every year anyway. And friends had been asking me over the years, can I go to Malaysia with you? Can I go to Malaysia with you? And I've taken folks here and there, but it's never been this kind of thing where I organized a trip, planned the, you know, the, the cities that we would stop at and planned the dishes that we'd, we would eat in all the different cities. They're all my favorite things. And what better way to share them than right there in Malaysia in like 100 degree weather and you're eating a spicy hot dish, you know? So it's 
part of my quest to share Malaysian cuisine, and it's the most fun way to do it, I think, is to go there and sit on a rickety stool and eat something. Give us the sort of bird's eye, super quick overview of what Malaysian cuisine is and how it got to be that way. Okay, so it's a little bit of a history lesson, right? So if you look at a map of Asia, Malaysia is that tiny peninsula that hangs off the south of Asia. It's geographically, it's south of Thailand, north of Singapore. In the 1500s, a little town on the coastline called Malacca became a very popular port city. Why was it popular? Because it was sort of in the middle of the ship journey from Europe to China. We were right smack dab in the middle. It was a great place to stop, um, you know, refill your, your, restock your supplies on your ships and do a little trading and move on. So the Portuguese landed in Malaysia, where the Malays had been living peacefully for eight centuries and colonized Malacca. As they did. Mm. Yes. Um, And After a few years, the Dutch came over and said, hey, we want this port. We'll colonize this. The Dutch colonized. At the same time, the Chinese heard of tremendous mining and trading opportunities in Malaysia. They came from China in ships full of immigrants and landed on the the shores of Malaysia. The British then came and kicked the Dutch out and said, hey... We'd like this spot. Everybody Bye-bye. wants their piece of Malaysia. That's right. So they, they landed. And that says a lot about that particular part of the world. The British landed. They developed rubber plantations. And they brought people from India, my ancestors, to come and work on the rubber plantations. Because they needed labor. They needed labor that they had already trained. People in India at the time had already been colonized by Britain. Everybody spoke English. Right? So they brought them all with them. So because of this multiculturalism over the centuries, Malaysian food has become these, this um, mix of cultures. So it's Indian food, yes, but the Indians learned about aromatics like lemongrass and galangal and kaffir lime leaves that they had never used in their cuisine before, but now they were using them. The Chinese came with their incredible cuisine from China, right? But they also learned how to use coconut milk, dried shrimp, dried anchovies to flavor dishes. You're making me really hungry. Oh my God, so good. Um, And the Malays learned how to use cardamom and cinnamon fresh from Sri Lanka, you know, that that they were growing there. And this is Malaysian cuisine. So if It's you go, the United Nations of cuisine, I right, think. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. So we always say America's a melting pot. Malaysia is too. In its own way, it's a melting pot. It really is a melting pot. Oh, right. Literally a pot right. of food. <laughs> exactly. Right. When you ask what Malaysian food, it's not a one-line answer. It can't be. When you understand the history, then you understand the centuries of coexistence led to what Malaysian cuisine is today. Can you tell us a little bit about how you went about planning this trip? Because like you said, most people do not understand where Malaysia is on a map, what the influences are. So when you were thinking, okay, I'm going to take a group of people over there, where do you start? Where do you end up and what do you do in between? Okay, so the planning of the trip, figuring out where I was going to go in Malaysia was the easy part because this is a trip that I do pretty regularly. I go to Malaysia to spend time with my family and we drive up the coast, the west coast of Peninsula Malaysia, and we eat all along the way. And so this trip was based on 
that journey that I had done a couple of times before. We start in Malacca, which is an hour south of my hometown, and we eat food that is, Malacca is the town that was colonized by the Portuguese. There's still a very vibrant Portuguese community there. And so the food is Portuguese-Malaysian with lots of European influence in stews and curries and and cooking methods that otherwise would never have come to Malaysia. We start there. It's sort of starting at the beginning of Malaysia to me, which is this town called Malacca. And then we eat our way north and we end at Penang, which we call the jewel of the Orient. And it's some of the best eating in Asia. I think Penang alone, if someone was traveling to Malaysia on their own, go to Penang for five days. Oh, that's a good tip. Because that's how long it's going to take you to eat your way around Penang. The food is out of this world. Um, there's a dish called asam laksa. It's a um, spicy, clear broth made with mackerel and thick noodles, sort of like udon, um, and then all these different toppings on top, uh, calamansi lime, sliced cucumbers, fish, fish balls, um, torched ginger flour. Torched ginger mm, flour? Yes. Okay. It's a beautiful, uh, you can Google that. It's a beautiful flour that has an incredible taste. And, and it's uh, torched? Is it? No, no. Of, okay. it, that's the name, torch. Oh, it looks got like it. A, it. Because it looks like a torch. Uh, right. Okay. It looks like a torch. Flaming flowers arrive at the table <laughs> on top of your bowl of soup. I love this. Yeah. And Anthony Bourdain said it was one, it's one of his most favorite things that he had ever eaten in the world. And after eating that, he said he was spoiled for eating. I wonder if my stomach grumbles are getting picked up on the microphone right now. (laughs) Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What was it like? What was it like to go on a trip that you usually do with your family with a bunch of presumably strangers? How many people did you have with you on okay, the trip? So when I had set up the trip, I thought, you know, I need at least six people. Okay. I need at least six to make it worth my time, to make it worth giving up five days of my vacation because the trip was five days long. But we only managed to sell three tickets. Okay. It was not easy for me to sell this trip. I think it's so far away. It's so unknown. And maybe there's a level of, I don't know where I'm going. Do do I really want to go there to eat a cuisine I've actually never heard of? And so we sold three tickets. And part of me was ready to abandon the trip because I had 
decided that six was the number. What yeah. an intimate group you probably yeah. ended up with. That's right. So it was great for our first time out to have three people, three really gung-ho folks who are like, take me to Asia and feed me. Um, and so what we did was we kind of folded it into the family. Oh, so you're, that's even better. So were they having dinner with your mother? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. To, which actually, so, really, I mean, if one of uh, the goals of everybody's trip is I want an authentic local experience, they got what it. is more local than right. mama's at the table with right. us? Right. My, with my nieces and nephews running around and, you know, and so we had a really nice time. I was really grateful for that experience of doing it on those terms. Because it was, yes, it was a paid trip and I was responsible and everything, but it was also folded into my time there with my family. I didn't feel like I needed to completely separate the, separate the two, which in my head was what I was going, was how I was going to do it. You didn't just have to be the cruise director. That's right. And it just was so much warmer, so much nicer. And the end of the trip, you know, these people were hugging us. It was hard for them to leave. And it was really, really nice. By the end of it, you know, they were family. What were the surprises for you as somebody who's putting this trip together? And this could be in the relationship of the people that you were traveling with or in making discoveries in your own home country. I see my home country through my lens, right? And it's interesting to see it through the lens of someone who's never seen it before. So there were things that they were pointing out that I had always taken for granted, like, you know, how Saramban, my, my hometown, is this small, sleepy town, and yet it's so vibrant with food culture. I just, I grew up there. I wasn't thinking on those terms. I just knew where to go to get the curry laksa. I knew where to go to get the chicken rice. Um, and I knew, so it was that. And then it was also sort of looking at dining in Southeast Asia through a Western lens, which we just accept the rickety stools, the tin roof that starts to leak in the middle of your meal. You know, you're sitting there, there's a river next to you, it starts to rain, the river starts rising. We're immune to all that. We're just like, let's get the food. Let's, you know. Nothing else a, matters. Nothing else <laughs> matters. Um, stray cats. Lots of stray cats. Stray dogs, mm -hmm. uh, depending on where you are. And, you know, I want to say yes, but... Don't look at that. Just eat, look at this food. But I think, you know, we can do a bit better about keeping the animals away at least. And then there's my niece. <laughs> my niece is on the floor feeding the cat. And I'm like, kid, what are you doing? Get up. And I never would have had that thought if there were not people sitting at the table who were not accustomed to that. Oh, that's interesting to think about. Yeah. yeah. Were your guests, were they looking askance? Like, what's that little girl doing feeding that stray cat? No, they would say, that's like, is this is this normal? <laughs> right. And I was like, yeah, it is. Um, the floor, there's this one chicken rice place in my hometown. It's called Diamond Chicken Rice. And the reason why it's called Diamond Chicken Rice is because there's a woman who, her one job is to quarter and chop up the chicken to put on the plate. And she's an absolute pro. She stands there for four hours. That's all she does. And they've been doing this business for over 35 years, and they are loaded because everybody, people come from all over Malaysia for diamond chicken rice, and she's got a rock on her finger 
that's just, I mean, it's crazy. And it's what a visual. You just picture her with all I mean, those chicken guts and the smattered in schmaltz. Crystal. Right. Oh, yes. Yeah. Her hands are covered in schmaltz. She's very, uh, she's tall and slim and she's beautiful and she's got giant glasses and she's standing there. And she's chopping this chicken with this rock shining and all that chicken fat. And the floor is dirty. Right. And we walk in and I pick up on all the cues, right? So when I'm in a room and I look at people, I know what they're responding to or reacting to. I see it without even them saying it. So they're looking at the floor. It's muddy. It's dirty. I've never looked at it that way, right. you know, until I went with people who've never seen that before. Was it upsetting to you or or did uh, you feel like you had to justify certain things? No. I like to, to let people have their experience of it and process it from whatever background they come from. You're going to process it however you want. At the end of the day, I think the food and the family takes center stage. Everybody says that they want as they want experiences to be as authentic as possible. So I'm guessing that if I went to that chicken rice place and suddenly there was sparkling tiled floors, <sighs> you would look and yes. say, Diamond Lady, what have yes, you done? done. Why, why? What have you done to yes, the place? Yeah, that's right? right. Yeah, I would never want to like sanitize an experience for anyone. I want you to eat where I, where I grew up eating and experience it in its fullness, you know? What were... The highlights. What were some of the great things that you did? When you think back on this trip, what are the scenes and the things that just flash through your minds as the, oh, my God, highlights? Uh, one of the, okay, there, there are two highlights for me and for them. One was taking them to a place in my hometown that makes beef noodles. It's um, it's a stewed brisket on top of noodles with a like a dark brown sauce, peanuts, uh, pickled cabbage um, and beef balls and soup. And I ate that every Friday afternoon after school with my mom before we went to the market and then got in a rickshaw to go home with all the marketing. And it has stayed the way that they have made it all these years. I think I was 10 when I started going there. I'm 50. So <laughs> they've been making that at least for 40 years. Right. And it was so great to take them there and to share that with people. And it was so good. And it comes in a small size and a large size. And, you know, when people are going to sit down and eat something they've never eaten before, some are like, you just lay it on me, whatever it is, I'm going to eat it. And some are a little more cautious. I'll start with a small. Yeah, I'll start with a small. And then then a few minutes later, can I, can I have another one? Right. Um, and I love that. That's my favorite thing. You ate something you didn't know. You were a little cautious about it, and now you're totally converted. Love it. And the second highlight was sitting at the bar on the beach in Penang watching the sunset, before knowing that you're going to go and have this amazing dinner as soon as the sun went down. The beaches in Penang are amazing. And you sit and you watch the sunset, and you have a few drinks, and uh, it's just otherworldly. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. 
I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This sounds so magical. I'm wondering, was it smooth sailing the whole time, or were there any hiccups or little um, travel fiascos that you had to kind of we, yeah? What wasn't figure so out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So we had not a travel fiasco, but directive that I gave everybody was never to drink water that came out of a tap, just to be safe. Listen, I drink anything and everything there, but I grew up there, and my system is accustomed to it. And I just was taking care of people from the West, and I just needed to make sure they were not exposed to bugs or bacteria. Nothing kills a trip faster oh, than not man. being able to leave the bathroom. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. So, Especially a food trip. Yeah, especially a food okay. trip. Because then, you know, if on the second day of your food trip somebody gets sick, then the next five days everybody's like on. So cautious. Like nervous. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So we, we don't want that. So I was trying to be very, 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 very careful with that. One of my guests decided to get fruit. Cut up, cut fruit from a roadside stand. I was trying to get her not to eat it, and she was gung ho. But it was, I think, I think it was day four or something. And she's like, "No, I'll be fine. I'll be fine." And and I said, "You know, I really don't want you to to do that. So I really, really put down the really, mango. Yeah, put down the mango, lady. The and roadside nobody gets fruit her. always gets me. Yeah, the, you I know, can and never resist. And then. you know, it's beautiful. <laughs> it, you know, in Asia." They have knife skills for days. Oh my right? God! The machete to the coconut. <laughs> right, Shock. Right, right. The other thing that uh, folks might not have been prepared for is how hot it is in Malaysia. It's hot, mm-hmm. but we're in an air-conditioned van. The hotel rooms are air-conditioned, but when you're traveling around, uh, Malaysians will sit down and eat a bowl of steaming hot soup on a hundred and eight-degree day. Oh yes, incredible. Because yeah. we are convinced it makes you feel better. Right. I don't think they're totally wrong, by the I way. Don't, I, don't I don't think I, they're totally wrong. Yeah, and as for me, you know, I make sambal. I don't, I just, all throughout the winter, I don't really crave it. But as soon as the hot weather hits, I'm eating more of it, I find. Huh. I, I just realized this last week, that when it's hot, I crave the chili hot peppers food. more. Yeah. Right. What did you learn about yourself on this trip? I always say that I don't like people. Ha. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and I say it a lot, <laughs> um, but I think I'm wrong about that. I think I like people. <laughs> Can you imagine to realize that at 50? Um, I think that I don't like people that I don't know. It takes a lot for me to, it takes a lot for me to let someone in. Um, and I think what I learned about myself on this trip is, you know, if people have decided to give you five days of their lives. In general, I think they want to be around you. They want to be where you're going. And it's okay to share yourself with folks. I mean, I imagine that 
people are asking all sorts of things, not just about the food. They're right. asking about how you grew up, what yeah, your home yeah, life right. was like, that's what your right. brother and sisters were like. Yes, or, yes. So it probably gets intimate pretty fast. Pretty fast, especially the group of three. I guess that's why it was. If it was a group of six or whatever it was that I had planned originally, it might not have resulted in that. But uh, this was definitely intimate. If you were telling someone how to plan this trip, if Pavi and I were looking to go and yeah. you weren't going to be there. Yes. What would be the piece of advice that you gave us to help us jumpstart our own trip? Don't eat in the hotels. Don't eat in the hotels. Seek out the places. I mean, I've I've written lists of places for people. Uh, you know, friends will say, oh, my girlfriend is going to Malaysia for three days. Where should she eat? I already have it in an email because I've sent it repeatedly. So you just copy and paste it. You wrote it for Fathom. Oh, yeah, that, that's right. But, yeah, you need to go outside of the comfort. The, the hotels are air-conditioned. It's nice. You can eat anything you want. It's the, the AC is down to, like, 65 degrees. But, no, get out of that. You're going to Asia. Step out of your comfort zone. Look for the, you know, the, the there's in Penang, there's a place called end-of-the-world seafood. It's at the top of the island. It's on a cliff. Uh, it's you have to go off the main road and drive on a little dirt road to find it. Go, go. That's where the fish just jumped out of the sea, the crabs, the shrimp. Um, <laughs> the food at the end of the world is out of this world. Yes, <laughs> yes. So you've talked about the chicken rice. You've talked about the beef soup. Is this the sort of place where every restaurant has its little specialty? And by restaurant, I mean like every stand yeah. with the tin roof that right. leaks when it rains, like you yes. were saying. Yes, 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 exactly right. So I was just talking about this with my husband the other day. The thing about eating in Asia, and in Mal Malaysia in particular, a hawker learns how to make one dish. It's probably something they learned from their family. And they make one dish and they make it forever. It's their one thing, right? And so imagine the level of perfection that they have achieved with this dish. The chicken rice lady, the rice is perfectly schmaltzy, not too much, just the right amount of ginger, just the right amount of chicken fat. It's gleaming with oil. It's yellow. It's so flavorful. The chicken is cooked perfectly. It's dunked in hot water. It's only boiled. It's boiled. And then she chops it up, puts it on a plate, and sauces it. She's been making this sauce. She's been saucing this chicken for 40 years. She's got the perfect balance. The sweet soy, the sesame, the black soy, the cilantro. Perfection. These hawkers, whom I have the utmost respect for, have been making these dishes, this one dish, forever. So right. does this mean, sorry, that dinner would be a movable feast where I'd go to one stand for the soup course, then I'd go to someone else for something else? Okay, so in, in Malaysia, we have what, what we call the hawker centers. So it's basically somebody found a piece of land, put down a cement floor and a tin roof, and, and then rents out space, hawker spaces around the perimeter. So you walk in, the middle is full of t tables and chairs. Uh, and the sides are hawkers. And you walk around and you pick what you want to eat. And you give them a table number and they'll bring it to your table. Bring it mm. over to you. So you're sitting and you're eating something from this hawker, something from a hawker over there, and something from somebody else. The original food court. Yes. The original food court. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Is there anything that you would want to add to the trip or anything you would want to do differently? What we didn't do last time was a cooking class. 
perhaps a cooking class in Kuala Lumpur? A cooking class is so nice because that's something I found when I travel. I like to come back and recreate or attempt to recreate yes. a favorite meal. Yeah. It's a nice way to extend the trip. Yes, and then there's a wet market. I think that everybody needs to go to the wet market. We didn't do this last time, but I would love to take folks to the wet market just to see how different life is on the other side of the globe. Would you define uh, really quickly what a wet market is? A wet market is an Asian market that sells everything produce. There's a produce section. There's um, a pork section, a beef section, a chicken section in the I guess we call it a wet market because the the vendors are spraying down the vegetables and whatever. The floors are all wet. It's dirty. It's probably the dirtiest place you will experience. Um, Even though they're constantly <coughs> rinsing it off. Oh, yeah. Mm. Uh, you know, the fruit and the vegetables come straight from the farms and they're covered in sand and soil and that's everywhere. That's all over the floors. You will see fruit and vegetables that look like they came from an alien from from you know you know somewhere else in a hundred years you won't see those things here torch ginger flowers torch ginger flowers yeah. <laughs> do have a line of sambals and sauces yes. that you make that yes. people can buy they're sweet and they're savory and yes. you can i mean we've covered these on fathom and yes. we included them as great holiday gifts for people who right. are who love travel and food yeah. um so people can order your foods yes these sauces and yes. do they and they come with little recipe cards i have yes. recipe cards yes they do if somebody wanted a starter because they're so intrigued by what we've told them about malaysian cuisine being the un of food what would the sauce be that you think is a good starter sauce for I, malaysian cuisine i have a i make a lime leaf sambal it's a green chili pepper sauce flavored with makrut lime leaves makrut lime leaves to me encapsulates the idea of malaysian food for me it's such a beautiful fragrance um and flavor and so with that jar you can make a hundred things with it and you'll feel like you're in Malaysia. Put it on some salmon, stick it in the fridge. I'm sorry, stick it in the oven, and your house will smell like Southeast Asia. When people say to you, I want to eat good Malaysian food, where should I go? Here, what are the places? New, New York, York or New there's York. a place in L.A. that you love? Just the quick okay. hits. Our listeners so, are from all over the so, country. Uh, in New York City, come to New York City. Go to a place called The Malay Restaurant. It's in Flushing, Queens, and that's the closest thing you'll get to eating in Malaysia, including the rickety stools and the dirty floor. Um, are they yes. open for lunch? Because yes, you everybody go keeps hearing my stomach growling. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you have to go to Queens for the best Malaysian food. And also now in um, in Chinatown in Manhattan is Kopitiam. Kopitiam is a, a Chinese Malay concept. It means coffee shop. And uh, the Kopitiam here in 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 Chinatown makes the most beautiful nyonya, which is a type of cuisine inside Malaysia, uh, dishes and desserts. And every time they their Instagram gets me harder than anything on Instagram. Mm. Yeah, so go go to Kopitiam right here um, in Chinatown. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Arya, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for making me so hungry. I think we're ready to go to Malaysia. And that's our show. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And, you know, leave us a five-star review. A Way to Go is a production of iHeartRadio and Fathom. You can find the details we talked about in the show notes and on our website, fathomaway.com. 
Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter when you're there. You can get in touch with us anytime at podcast at fathomaway.com and follow us on all social media at at fathomway to go. Please tag your best travel photos, hashtag travel with fathom. If you want to really go deep on the travel inspiration, pick up a copy of our book, Travel Anywhere and Avoid Being a Tourist. I'm Geraldine Gerba. And I'm Pavia Rosati. And we'd like to thank our producer, editor, and mixer, Marcy DePina, and our executive producer, Christopher Hasiotis. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.